we'll turn to 1 Samuel 14 with me. 1 Samuel 14, we'll be looking at the second half of this chapter. As we look at Saul and his continued string of bad decisions and that effect on the people of Israel, we'll see again how we are not that much unlike him in our own decision making. Before we go to the, the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We come to your Word. We know it is full of truth. It is always right and just. and It is always good for your people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use it to convict us of our sin Anytime that we think that we might be able to instruct you, please correct us, Lord. We are capable of that sin and much more, and we need your continued guidance. We need your continued presence in our lives that we might do what is right and do what is good by you. So, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to show us our sin, to lead us in the truth and by the truth. Open your word that we might hear and see this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage this week, I actually watched a lot of Star Trek also this week, which is kind of interesting. But one of the episodes actually kind of reminded me of this passage, and not necessarily the exact story but kind of what's going on in the in the background, even in the mind of Saul as he's going through there. In this <clears throat> episode of Star Trek, it's the next generation. It's called Who Watches the Watchers? And the basic idea is you have this primitive civilization that accidentally sees some of the technology from the future, from the Star Trek future, because the Star Trek folks are watching this primitive society. And, well... The primitive people interpret that as the gods. And for the rest of the episode, they're essentially making guesses as to what the gods might want and why the gods are angry with them. They're terrified of angering this god that they now call the Picard. Well, Picard is the the name of the captain in the episode. And they delude themselves so badly that even when Picard shows up in the flesh, they still don't believe him. Saul has almost got himself to that point in this story, I think. He's continuing to search out what God would have him to do. He, Even though Samuel has told him what to do, and told him what to do, and he disobeyed and disobeyed those direct commandments, and then was rejected for that. He's still struggling with this. He's been riding the coattails of his son Jonathan's success and his wise decision-making. Jonathan seems to be in direct contact with God's wishes and his will, seems to understand what God is doing and what God wants. Not exactly. Remember last week, Jonathan said, maybe God will help us. Well, it just so happened that he did. Yet Saul is continually guessing. He's always grasping at the truth, wondering what he should be doing next. Well, we're going to see more of this same idea in the text today, as he has his people not eating for some reason. 
then threatens to kill them if they do. Maybe it's a spiritual exercise of some sort. Maybe he's just angry. We don't really know why. He gives us a little bit of insight as to why he's having them not eat, but it's really his own selfish reasons. We do know that the people are at war, and they should probably eat. As you know, eating's good for people. But Saul isn't much for that type of wisdom. And so, for us, we have to be careful Because we may want to try to separate Saul from ourselves at this point and say we're not that dumb. But sometimes we are. We make unwise decisions, especially when trying to guess at the possible will of God. Much has been made, and much will be made, as to what God's will for our lives is. A lot has been written on the subject. People say things like being in the center of God's will as if there's, it's like a room and you can go into it and be in the middle of it or something. Or God's will for your life is this. And they'll say something without really using much scripture to back up their claims. And there really isn't any difference between that and doing what Saul is doing here, grasping, grasping at straws, trying to figure out an omnipotent God who does as he pleases all the time. So as we consider this text, we're going to see it from again from the vantage point of the two individuals here, Jonathan and Saul, just as we did last week, and how they handle God's will for their lives. And we'll look at that with Saul being a man in the dark and Jonathan being a man in the light. And so with that, let's look at the text today, standing together as we read it, 1 Samuel Chapter 14, starting at 24 and reading through the end of the chapter. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for he feared, for he feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I've tasted this a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. 
and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us, let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer on that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For the Lord lives, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant on this day? If this guilt is in me or Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt be in the people of Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan said, I have tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff, and that was, that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, the kings of the, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, and the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So there's, again, a lot going on here, but we're still kind of in the midst of battle. Just a reminder where we were. Remember, Saul was under the pomegranate tree with his motley crew of advisors. Meanwhile, Jonathan was out winning the war against the Philistines, or as we're told later, God was actually winning the war and using Jonathan as his instrument to do so. Remember, the issue last week was Saul's complacency and fear in the face of his enemies, the opposite of what he had been called to do. And we're going to continue to see, and we just, as we just read, he's acting out even more and more. 
people tend to do and say stupid things when they're under stress or afraid. We all tend to do that. We've all been there, for sure. And again, the one who rests on the promises of God has no need for stress in their life, no need for fear, and therefore is able to keep a level head. Not that keeping a level head is the moral of the story, as it were. Again, belief in Jesus Christ takes center stage here. But our belief and the degree to which we really trust the Lord is in view in this passage. When we don't trust, we tend to make up whatever we can just in order to have something to hold on to. And I think Saul has reached the epitome of that here in this text. And so let's look first at Saul, a man in the dark. The very first thing we read here, verse 24, is that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on thy enemies. Why were they hard-pressed? Because they weren't able to eat. If anyone was going to eat food, they were going to be cursed, which I believe this text just assumes that that means their death, as we see later with how he deals with Jonathan. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing to say, right? In the middle of a war, you can't eat anything. You just got through chasing the Philistines, and now you can't have anything to eat. Must be pretty tough. Again, times of stress and fear tend to bring out these types of crazy things out of us. Turn with me to Judges chapter 11. We'll look at another crazy thing. Judges chapter 11. Remember, Judges is not new history, but is relatively recent. As far as Saul is concerned, he knows these stories. And so this is uh, something that he would have remembered. Judges 11, starting at verse 29, here we have this judge named Jephthah. And he's fighting his enemies as well. And this is what he says. He's battling the Ammonites. And starting at verse 29, it says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I shall offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from, El- from Aurora to the place of Meneth, twenty cities as far as that place, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah said, Lord, if you'll just give me victory over these enemies, Whatever comes out of my house when I get home to greet me, I'll have killed and offer it to you. That's pretty stupid. 
And I know stupid's a really strong word, but it's very appropriate here. Wasn't the Lord intent on the people of Israel having their own land? Weren't the Ammonites in the way of that? Why didn't Jephthah just trust the promises of the Lord? Right? Rather than make some silly vow that whatever comes out to greet him, when he gets home after battle, he's going to kill. That seems to not make any sense to us. It shouldn't. It shouldn't make sense. The same reason that Saul's vow shouldn't make sense to us. It shouldn't. All right? But, do we believe the promises of God all the time, too? Do we do silly things? It's interesting that the Hebrew verb there for hard-pressed is the verb form of the word taskmaster found in Exodus. Remember when the Egyptian slave drivers were oppressing the people of Israel and driving them and pushing them hard? And Saul is put in that same boat here. He's taskmastering his troops, driving them down to see himself lifted up, to see himself avenged, as he says. Even when they come upon food in the forest. So can you imagine being famished, seeing this food in the forest, and not eating it, being so afraid of your leader that you're unable to eat, being just paralyzed with fear, and not in a good way. I love Jonathan's description of his dad here, and we'll look more at Jonathan's story in a second, but what was Jonathan's description of his father in verse 29, when Jonathan ate the honey? He says, my father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. Jonathan knew his father's leadership wasn't a good thing. He called it right. He was troubling the land. Making vows that are just wrong and immoral to begin with. Not something that leaders should do anyway. Then acting upon that vow. That's even worse, right? Later, when Saul finds that Jonathan had been the one that, eat, that ate the food, was there any like bit of remorse or regret in Saul? No. It almost seems as if you read this as if he suspected Jonathan all along. He was ready to kill him. Jonathan saw Saul as the problem. True. Saul looked at Jonathan as the issue. What had Jonathan done wrong here? Back in Judges, you don't have to turn there, but verse 35, when he gets home, uh, verse, verse 34 and 35, then Jephthah came home to his came to his home at Mizpah. What would we expect? He's coming home after war. His family's excited to see him. And of course, which exactly what you would think happened, has happened to me before. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. He's excited to see her dad. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, 
You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. She was the cause of great trouble for Jephthah, because she was greeting her father. I think he's got it all wrong. Don't read the end of the story unless you want to read something sad. He was willing to kill his daughter for to keep this vow, and I believe he did. He blamed her for coming out the door. Crazy. Thankfully for Jonathan, at the end of the story, the people intervened and saved his life. I think the last verse of chapter 14 really seals it for me as far as this, the kind of person that Saul is. It says this, And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. He had no peace when he was king. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him. He was driven by fear and his foolishness, and now he situates himself around the best soldiers because he was quite the opposite. And I think this is a warning for the church and one that can be seen from both sides. Concerning our leaders, I think it's important for us to not blindly follow our leaders anywhere. They'll say things that they can't keep up with. They'll do things that they shouldn't do. And they should not at all dictate our morality. Notice the people. What did they do after they were starved for that time? It says they ate the spoils of war. That they ate the blood of the animals, which they were forbidden to do. Why? They were starving. We shouldn't follow our leadership to the point that they would cause us to act out in sin. Or, the other side, be so against the leadership that it causes us to act out in sin as well. When following our leadership is the wrong thing, we don't need to do that. We have to, we're, we're uh, stuck to this, the Bible. It tells us what to do and how to act. And I think Jonathan demonstrates that in this passage. We would do well to follow suit. And secondly, and I think more importantly, we must be more careful not to lead in such a way as to lead people into sin. And this could apply to families. This could apply to businesses, any type of leadership relationship. But I think for us, as the church, collectively, do we do anything that would cause another person to stumble? It's an important question for us. Do our words always lift up rather than incite? Do our actions always bring healing rather than hurting? Do we offer the sweet truth of the gospel, or the bitter taste of contempt? It's an important question for us to ask ourselves. We know that Jesus said that the world will hate us, but we don't want that to be our fault. It could really, I think we could go into this idea quite a bit, but I think you get the main idea. May it be that the church is not troubling the land that we live in, but doing the opposite. 
And so let's look at the that Jonathan, the man in the light. Jonathan has really shown himself to be one of the most likable characters in Scripture up to this point, I think. He's, he always does the right thing. He's brave. Uh, he's good with a sword and a spear. What else could you really want? Uh, he fought his father's war. He's shown himself to be loyal and dependable. And now he's hungry. And so guess what hungry people do? They eat. Verses 27 and 28. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge or he had not heard his father charge the people with an oath. So he put out the tip of the staff with his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats the food this day. And the people were faint. So again, to be fair, Jonathan didn't know about Saul's vow because he was actually out fighting. I don't know that he would have just been hungry with the rest, or if he would have chosen to eat anyway. But we do know that he did eat, and he makes sure that we know that it's a good thing. What does he say? Well, look, my father has troubled the land. This is a great example of that. See how my eyes have become bright, because I have tasted the honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely from the spoil of their enemies. For now, the defeat of the Philistines has not been great. Imagine if they would actually have been eating food, and not even their own food, just the food that they stole from their enemies. He has the right of his father, that's for sure. He's been nothing but trouble. How much more could we be defeating them? I think we all get this a little bit. I've never been truly starved, pretty apparent. But I have been hungry, and I know what it feels like. To, to bite food and to eat food after it's been a long time since you've had it, your whole countenance just picks up. You're like, whoa, that's actually good. You know, it, it feels really good. When the people go out and just slaughter these animals and start eating them, you can hardly blame them. They're starving. And so what does Saul want them to do in order to make it right? He builds an altar. He has them eat their own oxen and their own sheep rather than the spoils. And then he wants to go out to battle. So he seeks the Lord in that. And he says, well, should we go out to battle? Will you deliver the Philistines into my hand? And then we have this bit about, you know, he's kind of calling upon the name of the Lord. And we have this, this uh, later we, we hear about the Urim and the Thummim, which is um, the words there literally mean light and darkness. A lot of people think there's maybe one dark stone and one light stone. We really don't know what the the Urim and the Thummim are, and how they were used. We just know that they were used to establish an answer of a yes or no question to the Lord. You see it prescribed in Exodus 28. Again, it's kind of a of a mystery. Don't go and craft Urim and Thummim in your home or don't buy them off TV when someone tries to sell them to you. Um, we don't know why they were there, but the, Saul sought the answer. Yes, Lord, tell us, do we want to go to battle or not? And God doesn't speak. So Saul, having the discernment of a green bean, decides to cast lots and figure out who has caused this problem. And remember, the lot lies in the lap of the Lord. It wasn't an accident that the lot fell to Jonathan. Jonathan was the one who did it. And so for some reason, the Lord saw fit for him to be found out of his crime of eating honey. 
And you'd expect that once Jonathan was found out, right, that Saul would see the absurdity of it all. Kind of like Jephthah should have saw the absurdity of it all when his daughter runs out to meet him playing a tambourine and dancing. And then he might relent. No, he doubles down. He says, Jonathan, you should die. You're, this is, you should die. Tell me what you've done. What does Jonathan say? I tasted a little bit of honey, verse 43. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Why would Jonathan do this? Jonathan could probably at this point, with his popularity and with his ability, just take the reins from Saul altogether, and we might have a completely different story. There may, no, there may even be no need for chapter 16 when David's going to be anointed king. If Jonathan had just said, you know what, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore, and just put an end to his crazy. But instead, Jonathan says, here I am, I will die. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. He wasn't going to lie. And two, for the good of his people. If by dying he could somehow settle this conflict between God and Saul and somehow right the situation for his people, what was he going to do for them? He was going to die. Even with all the following that we do and the constant going after the wrong things and constantly worshiping at the wrong altars, in all of our wandering around, have we ever found one that would willingly lay down his life for something so stupid as to what Saul said? Can you think of something so heinous and so despicable as Jonathan having to die right here? What about the fact that I can't stop worrying about little things that are going on in my life? Or the fact that I think that I'm a really good person because I know stuff about the Bible or because I did something nice for somebody one day and that somehow earns me something before the Lord, somehow makes me more important. What is it for you? We have these silly little sins that we commit over and over again, right? Those sins that Jesus laid down his life for anyway. Jonathan would have died this death to appease his father's wrong sense of justice. He was willing to do so. The death that Jesus died for us to appease his father's was for a real wrong. My sins against the holy God, your sins, the sins of the world. And his death did bring justice. And I, the sinner, get all the benefits. I'm the one who's justified. And so I think this story, as much as any that we've seen, really helps us to see, I think, the absurdity of our own sin. And why Jesus had to die. Jonathan, what ended up happening? Well, he was saved by his people. 
because they loved him so much. They weren't going to have their king kill his son, and so it says they ransomed him. They took him back. Do we have anything similar happening with Jesus? He died for his people while they hated him. And now we love him, but not nearly as much as we should, not even close. And so what do we do, church? We cling to him. We rest in him. We wrestle and we labor toward the end of loving him more and more. Not to earn his favor as if we could do that with our petty little offerings. We can't. Jesus' blood earned his favor. We don't need to do that, but our labor and our work as believers should be to love him more and more. We don't love him nearly as much as we should. So in conclusion, quickly, church, let us lead the world. Let us lead in the world. Let us be the ones who lead the world closer to Jesus rather than further away. Again, they may hate us because they hated Jesus. Let us not have them hate us because we are completely unlovable. We should be Christ's ambassadors in the world, the ones who seek redemption as far as the curse is found. That will make us the most lovable people on earth if we are doing that. And finally, brothers and sisters, let us remember our sin, that which at one time separated us from our Father in heaven, and remember the one who removed it so that we could have relationship with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we easily look at Saul's sin here and call it absurd and stupid, but Lord, our sins are no different. They are the same. Even the ones that we commit every single day, that we call out one day and commit the next. And so Lord, we beg your forgiveness. We know we need not earn your favor for what the Lord Jesus did for us. But Lord, help us to love you more to serve you more, to obey you more and more, that the world might know, that the world would see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.